Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome to the Next in Our Policy Forum pod series on the nature of work and the future of work and what work means for the well-being of people and the well-being of our planet. Today, we're continuing these fabulous and thought-provoking conversations by taking a look at global efforts to bring about decent work and to uphold the right to social security and social protection globally. My name is Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician, and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the, for the College of Health and Medicine here at the Australian National University. It's great to be back in the studio with my co-host, Sharon Bessel. Good to see you. Hi, Anna Greta. It's great to be here. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School and really looking forward to today's, to today's conversation. Absolutely. So Policy Forum Pod is, of course, produced by policyforum.net. We're part of the Crawford School here at ANU, and the Crawford School's the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. Uh, you can check out our degree programs and our short courses at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. The Sustainable Development Goals are described as a blueprint for the future. Adopted by the governments of the world in 2015, the Sustainable Development Agenda includes 17 goals and a very large number of targets and indicators to be pursued by all countries, developed and developing. Amongst the SDGs are goals to end poverty, to achieve gender equality and to bring about decent work and economic growth. It's some of these issues that we'll be delving into today with a guest who is an internationally recognised expert across these issues and who is central in global policy making on them. Sharon, can you tell us who we've got on today's episode? I certainly can. We are delighted today to have Shara Razavi with us. Shara is one of the world's leading thinkers and policymakers on social development and gender, and someone that I am regularly quoting in my global social policy classes, as my students will know. Shara holds a Bachelor of Science from the London School of Economics, a Master's Degree and a PhD from the University of Oxford, and has a very long list of publications on issues around social policy and gender equality, particularly particularly women's unpaid work and the impacts of globalisation and liberalisation on women. 
She has worked with some of the leading United Nations social policy agencies. Um, from 1993 to 2013, she was research coordinator at the United Nations Research Institute for Social Development. She was then chief of research and data at UN Women. And Shara is currently director of social protection at the International Labour Organization. Shara, welcome. We're delighted to have you with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon, for this invitation. And I am equally delighted to be with you during this conversation that we're going to have. I, I should add here that Shara had very kindly agreed to come to a conference that we were planning to hold in April of 2020 around <laughs> gender-sensitive poverty measurement. And of course, thanks to the pandemic, that conference never happened. So it's great to have some conversations today, Shara. One of the aims of the International Labour Organization is to ensure decent work for all. Can we begin by asking you to just talk us through what decent work for all looks like and how far we are from achieving that aim? Uh, well, thank you for that question, Sharon. And I'm going to um, talk about in particular the way in which not having access to any form of social protection or social security, which is one of the key pillars of decent work, can in fact mean that people who are working, working very often long hours uh, and doing very important essential work, are deprived of the conditions that constitute decent work. I think it's important to highlight, uh, and I think, you know, sometimes uh, statistics can, can, can speak to some of the issues that are really important, that only about 47% of the global population is currently covered by at least even one form of social protection benefit, which means that about, you know, more than 4 billion people are wholly and completely unprotected by any kind of social protection provision. Now, in particular, what we are concerned about are the large numbers of working people in what we call the informal economy who are uh, working, whether it's in agriculture or manufacturing or services, uh, but who do not have any access to social protection. And this um, lack of access to social protection was cruelly, you know, exposed during the pandemic when people who were working informally had no access to work, but no way of ensuring uh, income security uh, through a kind of, you know, unemployment protection to uh, having even access to some kind of uh, social health protection so that they could seek health care without having to undergo and pay very high fees for health. So I think what, what we really need to be thinking about as we move forward is ensuring that people who are in the working age population and who are in the labor force do have um, solid access to social protection, whether it's to shield them from the kind of insecurities that uh, come their way in a kind of global crisis like the one we, we currently had, uh, or also, equally importantly, to shield them from the kind of day-to-day -day contingencies that we all have, you know, whether it's because we get sick or because we lose our jobs or because we have, you know, children we have to take care of and not the time that is needed 
to combine that kind of work with employment or whether it's because, you know, it's uh, we're faced with old age and we need to reduce or uh, not engage in any form of paid work. These kind of life cycle risks, as we call it, we need people to be protected and to have income security when they face these kind of life cycle risks. Shara, there have been debates for many decades now over how to deliver social protection for for all people uh, in both the formal and the informal sector. And those debates have been around whether it should be the state delivering to all citizens, regardless of their employment status. And, and that picks up on those issues across the life cycle that you talked about, whether it through, should be through workplace systems, whether it should be um, informal community networks that, that operate outside the state, um, or whether it should be through the market. If we are to achieve social protection for all, what can we learn from the debates around these different approaches? Are there some that serve us better in reaching everyone than others? Are there some that we should discard? Now, how do we think about this balance between the state, the market and the community in achieving social protection for all? I, mean, I think this is a really important question that you're asking. I, I would say it's the key policy question, right? Uh, you know, how to combine the different kinds of provision, whether, as you said, whether it's provided through the state or through the market or the so-called community or people self-provisioning through the household and families that they have. Um, I think a, an important starting point is to say that for this system to work, and most countries do combine in different ways elements from the different forms of provision. One thing that is really important to bear in mind is that ultimately the state has to bear the overall responsibility for the social protection architecture so that those who are not catered for through, let's say, market provision or community provision or, you know, through their own families and households, they do have um, a fallback position. So even in contexts where states are not actively and fully engaged in the delivery and provisioning of social protection, they do and need to bear the responsibility for the overall system, that the system is functioning well, that there is, um, you know, accountability in the system, that everyone, you know, everyone, uh, and that's what we mean by universal social protection, that everyone has the right to social security. And if they cannot be uh, accessing the kind of protection that they need through markets or communities, there is a public provision, a public option for them. So apart from the state playing a role in terms of directly provisioning it, uh, I think uh, what is also what is a really important starting point is to emphasize the overall responsibility of the state for ensuring the well well functioning system, a system that can be multi pillar, if you like, with provisioning from uh, the state as well as uh, from markets in some contexts and from communities. But what we also do know is that you know markets respond to the uh, to people's capacity to pay in cash, right? I mean, so if you have a system, let's say healthcare provisioning, that is strongly uh, market delivered, we know that this is going to leave significant exclusions and inequalities in the absence of proper regulation and the in the absence of a, of a strong public option. 
so I think that's a really important point to emphasize. And likewise, you know, the although people like to speak about the beauties of community provision, you know, communities can be very unequal and community provisioning can be very exclusionary if certain groups, you know, ethnic groups or women are excluded uh, from the kind of community provisioning that is available. So again, there is a very strong role here to be played by a state. And that's why, you know, we do say that the importance of the state in having the ultimate responsibility for the functioning of the system and ensuring that uh, universal social protection is provided for everyone in a way that is accessible and adequate and of good quality. In some of the conversations that we've had so far, the the use of the gross domestic product and the the consumptive basis on which that is calculated uh, has come up as a topic of conversation, particularly in terms of the precarious nature of work. I'm just wondering whether social protection can be achieved for all uh, in the do- with the dominance of neoliberal thinking, uh, particularly over the last four or five decades, and this increasingly financialized nature of capitalism. How much does the economic system in which we live influence the opportunity for us to care for each other? Yeah, that is another really important question. Um, you know, I want to begin by saying that ultimately, you know, providing social protection for everyone I think it's also, if you want to think, you know, from the lens of capital, I would say there are also a lot of benefits in it for capital. Um, in fact, you know, we have to think that the welfare state in a way has its origins and was set up to respond to some of the needs of employers, of, uh, of capital, if you like. So having a workforce that is healthy, that is productive, that is well-skilled, that is protected when they're sick, um, that, w- that when there is a crisis like the one we just had, uh, enterprises are not forced to let go of their workers, but can retain them and keep them so that when we are over the bump, then you know the workforce is already there, still attached to their um, enterprises. That There are benefits in it for capital. So it is, in some ways, I think one can say a win-win um, scenario. Social protection has something in it obviously, for workers, for working age population, for working families, however you want to refer to the working age population and um, and, their, and their children and dependents. Um, but also there's something in it um, for enterprises, for uh, employers. And I think there's something in it in terms of thinking about, uh, you know, the continuity and the peacefulness of a society. It reduces the kind of social and political disruptions that can be very harmful for everyone, including for capital and for the state. So I think we need to really look at that from that kind of bird's eye view as a starting point uh, and say this is a kind of investment that has payoffs for everyone. And then, of course, the big question is, you know, who's going to pay for it? And that's where I think, you know, the it becomes much more of a zero-sum game and there are conflicts and tensions in terms of how do we finance it. Uh, that, I think, is a very big question. Uh, I mean, we know, for example, that countries are spending something like 13% of their GDP on social protection at this moment. Uh, and that, you know, high-income countries spend much more, about 16.5%, compared to, say, low-income countries who spend about only about 1% of GDP on social protection. 
So that is one set of issues that we have, that countries, uh, depending on where they are in the in the in terms of their overall um, income, are spending very different proportions of their GDP on social protection. And then the big question also is, you know, what responsibility do enterprises and employers have? Do we just have um, a kind of what we call a non-contributory system that is financed through taxation? Or do we combine uh, having a tax-based system together with what we call contributory system, where employers and workers also make contributions through a kind of social insurance system? You know, what combination do countries have of these two at least uh, different elements. And then within the tax finance system, you know, who's paying taxes? Do we have more progressive taxes where we have corporate taxes, wealth taxes, income taxes, or do we rely much more on consumption taxes that, as we know, tend to be quite regressive? You know, do the poor have to pay for their own social protection, you know, by having uh, VAT taxes and taxes on uh, items that tend to form a much larger proportion of the consumption basket of people uh, who are poor and having low incomes? Or does the tax system, is it more progressive and does it rely more on, let's say, corporate taxes or wealth taxes or income taxes? So that's another big question. You know, how, what is the tax composition in a country? So, so I think, you know, if we, we really need to look at it in this way, how much do societies invest? You know, this question of what proportion of GDP do we invest? Then do we invest it through uh, a tax-based as well as kind of social insurance-based uh, contributions? What combination of the two? And then, you know, within the, um, the tax-based systems, you know, how do we raise taxes? How progressive are they? Um, I think these are the big questions. And I, and I do want to end again by saying that I think uh, there are benefits coming from social protection, not only for working age population and their dependents, but also for um, employers, enterprises and the state. Uh, everyone has a stake in it. And I think when we don't have sufficient investments, when we have people who are sick, who don't have access to healthcare, um, people who uh, don't have family benefits, people who cannot really benefit from uh, the kind of public services that are needed to have a productive workforce, then everyone kind of loses. But then, of course, there are also big questions around, as I said, how, who pays for it? And there, we do have some conflicts and some trade-offs and some, you know, a, a zero-sum game situation uh, where um, I think societies often, you know, tend to um, come down on putting more emphasis on uh, some groups paying more than others. And here, I think, you know, the question about, you know, what power capital has and what power working population has becomes a really big question in how issue, how social protection is financed. I hope that answers your question. It does. And I think it also demonstrates beautifully the complexity of some of these issues um, that that countries um, and indeed the ILO are, are trying to grapple with. Shara, I just wanted to, to focus for, for a moment on the impacts of COVID-19 particularly. Around the world, we've seen the way in which the pandemic has impacted on the levels of, of social protection that people enjoy. And those impacts have been particularly deleterious for women. What are we seeing in terms of not just the impact on women's employment, but on gender equality and women's human rights and status more broadly during this time that that we're experiencing? 
Yeah, I think this is um, this is a very good question. Some of the evidence, you know, I think is still not there to the extent that we want it to be there. Um, but I think, you know, we do have uh, some already uh, emerging issues that are uh, quite important to highlight. Now, I think, first of all, I'd like to say that this crisis, as many people have argued, you know, has been uh, in many ways, uh, like an x-ray machine <laughs> that has revealed the fractures, the gaps, the problems in our societies. It has really been able to lay bare our pre-existing structural inequalities. And here, I think, inequalities of gender, along with inequalities of class and race and migration status have been very um uh, very clearly exposed, particularly through these kind of gaps that we have in terms of access to social protection, for example, but also showing up the way in which, you know, the uh, unpaid provisioning of care, which we all need on a day-to-day basis, is unequally provided by people and particularly disproportionately provided uh, by women. Also, I think in this crisis, unlike, let's say, the 2008 global financial crisis, um, there has been a massive kind of response uh, by states, by governments in providing social protection measures, although many of them, most of them have been temporary and it has been very unevenly provided. Now, going to the question about uh, sort of the impact on women in particular, what we do know is, is that First of all, that in terms of the impact on, on employment, approximately about 40% of all women workers compared to, let's say, something like about 36% of all employed men work in sectors that were very hardly hit by this crisis, including sectors like, you know, hotel and food services, wholesale and retail trade, arts and entertainment, business services and labor intensive manufacturing. And therefore, women have experienced severe job losses uh, in a way more than men. Second, and importantly, women's overrepresentation, I think, in frontline jobs, which have been deemed essential and which um, we know are, are very important, like healthcare and social services, women make up about 70% of workers in these sectors. And those who are, and women who are in these sectors, as well as men who are in these sectors, have uh, been put at the greatest risk of exposure to the virus. Um, so this was the second way in which women were more uh, intensely affected. And the heightened income insecurity and health risks that came on top of the growing, uh, you know, came on top of the growing tensions within the home. And we have seen some evidence of the way in which, you know, not only disruptions in schools and childcare and long-term care services have shifted much of the work of care into the home with increased hours that have been falling disproportionately on women's shoulders. Uh, men have also been contributing, but we know from some of the evidence that is emerging that, again, uh, there has been quite uh, a significant bit of inequality in terms of who's actually shouldering these unpaid work, care work that has been shifted into the home. And one of the uh, sort of outcomes of this has been that women have been pushed or have left uh, the workforce uh, at a, to a higher degree than men. This is not about looking at data on unemployment, but on people who have actually left the workforce, the so-called inactive population. In this kind of context, more women have left the labor force than men. So I think this is something which is worrying. One hopes that 
in the near future as, you know, care services, schools, um, long-term care institutions go back to providing services if that can can be made, you know, at the same level that we had prior to the crisis, which already was not great, that this at least will remove some of the reasons why women have been leaving the labor force. And also one hopes that some of the sectors in which women were employed may see a comeback and may um, uh, continue and start to employ more women. But these are big ifs, and we don't know if that's going to happen. Um, so already, I think we can see uh, already some negative trends in terms of women leaving the labor force and in terms of women taking on more of the unpaid care provisioning for um, for their families, which together uh, have created the kind of situation that we're in. And I'm not talking here also about some of the evidence that is emerging about increasing tensions within the home and the rise of domestic violence that uh, is also uh, particularly worrying. That's a fantastic spot for us to take a brief break. Uh, Maybe after the break, we'll come back with a lens on the future and how we might address some of this. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems. And people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. We're here with Shara Razavi from the International Labour Organization, talking particularly about social protection and some of the challenges that the world is facing. Shara, just before the break, we were talking a little about the impacts of COVID-19 on women. And I'm, I'm really interested to, to take that conversation a little further and to get your thoughts about how we think into the future. If we, if we think about the way in which global policy has thought about women's role in development and gender equality over the years. We've seen a women in development approach, which was very much about integrating women into development and really harnessing women's productive productive capacity. We then saw a shift from the 1980s to the language of empowerment and equality, but a real focus from activists and thinkers around the importance of deeply understanding power structures and the way they play out to impact on gender equality. And more recently, we've heard the World Bank kind of leading discussions around what's often described as smart economics and thinking in perhaps a rather more instrumentalist way about bringing women into the labour market um, and embedding women in the labour market as a way of achieving gender equality and women's empowerment, which to me sounds much more like we're going back to the early approaches of, of women in development. But I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on this 
and whether that focus on bringing women into the, the labour market is the best way to achieve gender equality and to ensure that women's rights are upheld. How do we think about these things as we grapple with and move beyond the, the pandemic? Well, first of all, Sharon, congratulations. You did a, a fantastic summary of a very uh, complex and rich uh, set of debates. And, and, and you put it beautifully, I think, which gives me a very uh, easy job then to just add a bit to what you said. You know, I think you're absolutely right in that, you know, this kind of smart economics is a reformulation of some elements of that kind of women in development thinking. And the idea that McKinsey talks about, you know, if only so many more women could be in the labor force, GDP would increase by, you know, XX uh, million dollars, you know, I think has that, first of all, a very instrumental thinking in it, but also just does not ask the right questions about integration into what kind of labor markets, on what terms. Is it work that is decent work, as you asked, you know, uh, in your first question? Does this work have uh, some limitations in terms of number of hours of work, conditions of work, protections in work, including social protection that's available to the worker so that if they're injured or if they, once they reach old age or if they're unemployed, they can have uh, income protection? Do they have health protection? So all of these questions are kind of bracketed, you know. And this idea of integrating women into the labor force as the goal, the ultimate goal, because it increases GDP, kind of really, I think, gets um, uh, puts the cart before the horse and gets uh, gets the main issues, does not ask the main issues, you know, in terms of the quality of the work, the structures into which women are entering as they enter into the labor force. But I also would not uh, sort of go so far as to say that this is very instrumentalist and um, there's nothing in it for women. I do think that from a kind of feminist perspective, women having an income of their own, which could come through employment, it could come through if they're older, you know, it could be as a pension or it could be just to refer to the rage at the moment about basic income or it could be through some form of social protection. Having an income of your own, I think that is important. But I would say that having it through um, employment also has, as long as it's decent employment, decent work, it also has some added advantages. You know, you are in a social context, you feel that your work is being valued. Um, you know, there's there are all kinds of things that come with also decent employment that you don't maybe necessarily get from um, having some kind of benefit. So I think it's this combination of having decent work and it, uh, uh, an adequate wage together with the peace of mind that comes from knowing that you will have social protection if you're not able to access work. And then for those who um, their circumstances are such that they have to rely on a form of uh, income transfer, I think that combination is really what we need rather than just seeing labor force participation as the end that we need to strive for. Just moving on to the International Labour Conference, which I think began in June, uh, and there will be a follow-on part to that conference in November this year. Uh, and I understand that in June, the ILC adopted a global call to action, uh, outlining the measures that are needed to create a human-centred recovery from the pandemic and to avoid the long-term scarring of economies and of societies. I'm wondering if you might take us through the measures that the conference adopted. What sort of framework is useful and particularly around the question about social protection elements? 
Yeah, thank you for that question. The the conference um, did adopt, as you said, a call to action for a human-centered recovery from uh, the COVID crisis. And also in this conference, uh, we had what is called a recurrent discussion. The last recurrent discussion took place in 2011. And this was uh, so a decade later that we had the recurrent discussion on social protection. And many different elements came out of the agreed conclusions that our constituents um, were able to hammer out. I think one very important element was this uh, very clear understanding of what universal social protection is. Uh, And I think there, what I really want to emphasize is that the universality is about everyone having access to social protection, but also that the term universal social protection is not about only access, but also about having access to adequate and comprehensive position uh, protection that is uh, sustainable. So it really brings all four elements into it. Universal access, adequate protection, meaning that it's not just a tiny benefit that doesn't even pull you above the poverty line. You know, it has to be adequate, the kind of the level of protection, that it has to be comprehensive, not just protection, let's say, for families with children, but also protection for people when they're old and cannot work, as well as those who are unemployed, as well as sickness benefits. So the whole life cycle, you know, so comprehensiveness really refers to the whole life cycle. And also the fact that it's uh, sustainably financed so that we can make sure it's not a one-off and that it can be sustained as societies move forward. So the whole issue of financing was very important and very extensively discussed. Um, I think that was one one very important element that came out of it. The other one, I think from a gender perspective in particular, was the importance of ensuring a gender responsive social protection system that makes sure that in its design, the social protection system addresses the needs of, uh, of women you know, whose needs can be very specific because of the way in which they straddle the paid and the unpaid economy. So the social protection system has to ensure that people who spend a lot of time doing unpaid care work or voluntary work or other kinds of work that is not considered as being part of the labor force, they also have adequate social protection uh, um, that is, you know, for their life cycle, for the entire life cycle. I think that's important. And in that, in that it also recognized the importance and the need for care also as part of that life cycle. When we're sick, we need care. When we're old, we need care. You know, when we're children, we need care. Um, And the importance of investing in um, adequate care services and in decent employment in for people who do that care, because we know that good quality, decent employment in the care sector also can ensure better quality services for people who need care. As those conversations unfolded at the recent International Labour Conference, I'm wondering how much emphasis there was or how much commitment there was to thinking about this from a rights-based perspective. We certainly see in in some countries, I would put Australia in this category and probably the UK and other countries, a real retreat from the idea of citizens having a right to social protection and a much stronger focus on the idea that social protection comes with paid contribution. And of course, that's really problematic, as you've, you've pointed out, for those people, often women, who are working in, in the, the unpaid sector, in the voluntary sector. 
if we think about the, the debates that were being had globally across countries, how strong or how shallow is the current commitment uh, to a rights-based approach? Yeah, I think this this is a really important question, you know, this idea of social security as a right. And I think the conclusions were very clear that universal social protection entails actions and measures to realize, as they say in point three of the conclusions, the human right to social security by progressively building and maintaining uh, you know, social protection systems so that everyone has access to this comprehensive, adequate and sustainable protection over their life cycle that is in line with ILO standards. And ILO standards are very clear about the importance of having rights-based system where the state is primarily responsible for establishing the legal and administrative architecture and ensuring sustainable financing of social security, because it is also the state that is finally the guarantor of the good operation of the system. Um, So this was very much emphasized in the uh, agreed conclusions. And it said very clearly that as a human right, social security aims to ensure that every human being enjoys a life in health and dignity. And this is really, really important. And that rights-based social protection systems can encompass, which have to encompass social protection floors, as well as higher levels of protection that guarantee that social protection related rights and obligations of all parties concerned, uh, of workers, of employers, governments and state institutions are anchored in law and duly observed. So this, I think, was very much the emphasis of the agreed conclusions in really setting up a rights-based social protection system that is anchored in law and that has state accountability as part of it. So as we start to get towards the end of this amazing conversation, I want to bring the topic back to work. And I think you've given a superb uh, framework for why social protection is essential to decent work. Sustainable Development Goal 8 calls for decent work and economic growth. Is economic growth the path to achieving decent work for all? And indeed, the other global goals of the sustainable development agenda. Or do you think it's time to try and decouple this economic growth and decent work framework? Yeah, that's a, that's a very key question. Obviously, I think we're all kind of thinking about, particularly in the context of the climate crisis, that is raising, you know, huge questions about what so far we have uh, meant by economic growth and what economic growth has entailed, you know, which uh, in many ways has been completely, um, you know, um, how can I put it, insensitive or completely unresponsive to, um, the kind of environment, the climate uh, issues uh, that that uh, underpin any kind of economy. And equally, I would say it has been completely insensitive to any kind of and the need for the kind of unpaid care provisioning. You know, all of these things are in a way the bedrock on which any economy sits. But our measures of economic growth and the models and pathways of economic growth that we have been pursuing have been have been completely blind to the kind of damage that they do to the planet, you know, to the environment and the damage that they do to the unpaid care provisioning, the day to day care provisioning of people for people. So I think we, we really do need to sort of raise very big questions about the kind of models and pathways of economic growth that we've had and the way in which we can have prosperity in ways that is not only inclusive and equitable and increases, um, you know, equality and equality on different dimensions, but also that is sustainable socially and environmentally. 
Um, I think these are the really big questions and we do need to really divorce ourselves from the kind of model of economic growth that has been, you know, um, so dominant and that these, you know, GDP has been measuring. We need other measures of economic prosperity and economic development. And I think the sustainable development goals provide uh, a very important framework for this kind of alternative thinking. But with the crisis, unfortunately, we are now, you know, uh, further away from achieving those goals because of the growth in poverty, the rise in inequality. So a lot of challenges are ahead, I think, in terms of how we move forward better. Shara, we, we're going to need to draw this conversation to a close, much as I would like to continue to, to tease some of these issues out. Um, and it would be great to come back to these conversations at some point. But as we do wind up, can I ask you, if you had a key piece of advice for governments around the world, perhaps in terms of what they need to do immediately in this context we now find ourselves of the pandemic to ensure social protection for all, and then as we move out of the pandemic, the key thing that they need to do to ensure ongoing social protection, what would those pieces of advice be? You know, I think the pandemic, as, as I was just saying, has really sort of compounded many of the pre-existing challenges that we had, you know, whether it's in terms of pervasive inequality and poverty, um, gender inequality. And as a result of, I think, these challenges, the central really question, I think, that many countries um, need to ask themselves is in the context that I think they have arrived, you know, at a crossroads, as we put it in our forthcoming World Social Protection Report, which is going to be launched in September of this year. They are at a crossroads with regard to the future of their societies and their social protection systems, irrespective of the level development that they are in. And I think we now really do face a choice, whether to pursue a kind of high road strategy, as we've put it in this report, of investing in and reinforcing the social protection systems that we have uh, and need to build to make sure that they are universal and accessible to everyone, that they're adequate in terms of ensuring decent living standards, they're comprehensive in terms of covering all the different phases of life, and they're financially sustainable and grounded in rights, or whether they want to really shun this option and follow a kind of low road strategy, which is, you know, chronic underinvestment, uh, succumbing to austerity, which may be around the corner, which we know is likely to result in very weak provision with limited coverage, minimal benefits, and which we think is really unfit for the kind of contemporary needs and challenges that we have. Um, so I think against, against this backdrop, we really need to reflect and countries have a choice in terms of which road they want to take. Of course, you know, some countries have more constrained choices than others, but there is, this is a question for all societies to be really thinking about, particularly in view of the kind of challenges that we face in terms of the dominant economic model, which has been socially, environmentally, and politically, I would even say unsustainable, and the need to really rethink and re-strategize for hopefully a high road out of the crisis. Shara, I think we can all hope that we do take the high road um, and that we explore those different pathways beyond the the less than constructive and perhaps some would say destructive pathways that we have been on. We thank you so much for sharing your time and insights with us today. And thank you for having me. It was great talking to you, Sharon. Thank you.
Sharon, that was a really amazing conversation. I was so pleased to hear Shara's perspective on the the other side of work. We think we spend a lot of time talking about work in terms of the activities that we do and how we get paid for it. But what she really reminded me and, and I think fleshed out extraordinarily was that that protection around work, that enables work. It's the, the way in which we care for each other, the, the social protection uh, that enables us to work effectively. And without that social protection, our work is not decent, it's not safe, uh, and it's really not productive. What were your thoughts? Look, I think that's right. I think that was a really fabulous conversation in terms of thinking about those things. And she also talked about, you know, when she was talking about uh, women's engagement in the workforce, she talked about all of those other benefits that come from work, the, the social benefits, the connectedness, the sense of, you know, contribution and value that one gets from work. And I think all of that is so fundamentally important. But I was also really interested in the comments that she made about the high road and the low road and the different pathways that governments in particular can choose to take. And of course, she did make the point that ultimately the state must take the lead when we think about these issues. You know, other actors, including the market, may have a role to play, but the state needs to take the lead and decide which pathway it is. And I couldn't help reflecting on the choices that have been made in Australia around some of these issues. And we see in Australia, I think, such a powerful example of the policy choices that are made to ensure social protection or to withdraw social protection. Last year, for example, with um, JobSeeker and the coronavirus supplements, we saw a policy decision to stop people falling into poverty and ensuring that there was some level of social protection for those who had been most severely impacted uh, by the pandemic. And of course, we then saw the conscious policy decision to take the low road and to plunge people back into poverty. And we now see the real challenges in, in this lockdown around how we support and protect people. So, so to me, there's something so powerful in that idea of the high road and the low road, but in the fact that these are choices that governments make and these are choices that we enable and allow our governments to make. Absolutely. It's what we vote for. Indeed. So that's a great place to leave the end of our, uh, our installation of the work series. The, we are partway through and listeners, we have at least two more episodes on our work horizon. Thank you so much for joining us today. We do love to hear from our podcast listeners and we would be encouraging everybody who's listening today to reach out to us on whatever platform you're comfortable with. We're on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum. You can email us at podcast at policyforum.net. You can join our Facebook group by typing Policy Forum Pod into the search bar. We'd love you to subscribe to our podcast, to share it with your friends, to leave a review on whichever platform you pod with. And we'd like to read the sorts of feedback that we get. We take them seriously. We'll even engage in half, hopefully half-decent conversations on whatever platform uh, you choose. So we are very much looking forward to the rest of this work series. It's such an important time to be talking about these issues. I'll see you next week, Sharon. I will see you next week, Anna Greta. And listeners, from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. Bye-bye from me too. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? 
Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 